0: Well, good morning, church. Uh, My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, just in case you're new or visiting. And I get the privilege of being the primary teaching pastor here. And and today, uh, we have um, a unique opportunity. um, We're starting a new sermon series, but I'm just thankful uh, to be able to be in this pulpit again. If you were here this last Sunday, uh, Ken uh, filled in for me. My family got a little bit of reprieve to... Uh, go take the kiddos down to Monterey and do the aquarium and, and he uh, joyfully stepped into the pulpit uh, for me last Sunday and which is a, I think a neat opportunity for us as a church just to continue just to, to hear just the different men that have called to help lead this church and we're going to have more people um, in the month of July as Ken mentioned we're going to have one of our missionaries Tim Imbrock, here in a couple weeks uh, he's not only going to tell us about his his ministry and what he does with MAF, but he's also going to lead us in preaching of God's Word on that 24th. Additionally, uh, our brother Justin is going to be uh, preaching at the end of July for us as well. So we got some just some neat things uh, coming down the pipeline that I hope you guys will be able to attend. But as I mentioned, today we are starting a new sermon series in which we have entitled Gospel Church or Gospel Driven Church, which is shorthand... For a sermon series where we're looking at different passages in the book of Acts and trying to consider the core foundations that we see inside of there. What, what was the early church doing? And why does that matter for us today? Because in all reality, I think we have to ask ourselves is what we are doing here on Sunday is that what the church is called to do? What are we supposed to do with the good news of what Jesus has done and accomplished and is going to continue to fulfill? And I feel this especially as your lead pastor. To rightly be constantly going back to the word and saying, is what we're doing actually what we see Christians called to do? As we await for the return of Christ. Is what we're doing here on Sundays, is what we're doing during the week, what we're doing in each other's homes, the relationships that we're building, is that what we actually see prescribed for the church to participate in? So that's kind of the overarching question that we're hoping that the sermon series, Gospel Church, will attempt to answer. What is a gospel church? What does it look like for a church to be built upon the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so as I mentioned, we're going to be looking in the book of Acts primarily for that. So we're just going to kind of zoom in on a couple of different places in that book to see how some of these early Christians, how they formulated, organized, and what they put emphasis on as a people. And I want to start that by looking at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, is where we're going to zoom in on today. That's going to be on page 911 if you're using one of those black church Bibles. And by the way, if you don't have a a Bible or you don't have an ESV, which is just the English translation that we use here, uh, feel free to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. So as you're finding there, let me go ahead and just lead us one more time in prayer. Because I need prayer. I need you guys to pray for me, and I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll dive into the word together. Well, Father, we want to come to you one more time, just knowing that we are completely dependent on you. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we don't have to just wonder or kind of throw a a dart in the dark and hope that we kind of get close to what you've called us to do. But rather, we have your word, Lord. We have these recordings of of how your earliest followers, how they took what you taught them, how you shaped them, and as they went into the world, we get to see that. And, and Father, we want to be dependent on your word. We want to rightly discern your word, and we need your help with that, Spirit. I pray that you would just illuminate the text for us. Got to pray for our kiddos in the classrooms next door. God, that those teachers and those little hearts, that that those teachers would be able to just kind of show them Christ. Show them how big Jesus is. And just give them just a gift of repentance. And just a love for you. No matter what age they are. But we're all dependent on you today, Lord. So it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to go ahead and just read through the first 12 verses for us to start. It reads, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of them, came, a number of the men, came to about five thousand. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were part, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, "By what power or by what name do you do this?" is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. That's why we say that. Now, in case you're not familiar with the book of Acts, Acts is called the book of Acts because it records the Acts of the Apostles. right? So the author, Luke, who also wrote the gospel that bears his name, he wrote a, basically a two-part eyewitness testimony of the early church. Part one was the gospel of Luke, where he records the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now, part two is the book of Acts, where once again, He records eyewitness testimony as long as he was along with a lot of these events. um, He was an accompaniment, uh, basically a travel companion of the Apostle Paul and others. And he's recording this eyewitness testimony of what did the early church do? How did those early, those first followers of Christ, how did they take the message of what Jesus did and actually go out into the world? So what we're reading, what we're looking at is kind of that part two. And we're looking at the very beginning of this. Now, before I actually give some content to this passage, I need to teach us another hermeneutical principle. Now, hermeneutics is just a fancy word of of how do you discern or understand literature. When you look at the book of Acts, there's an important distinction and kind of framework that we have to know about as we read narrative which is what the book of Acts is. It's a historical narrative. Because when we do a series like this, when we're looking at the book of Acts and we're trying to understand, okay, how does this book or, or these events, how does that translate into the church today? What we have to do is we have to be aware of a trap that, unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians can fall into. And it's a trap of looking at a historical narrative and seeing as it is always prescribing wholesale what a church is intended to do. That it's basically a, a story that is meant to be repeated in all places and in all times. Rather than, is, instead of it just being a prescription of what to do, is it just describing a historical event? So, the importance is when we read a narrative, are we looking at something that's been prescribed to the early church, or are we looking at something that's been described to the early church just to know what has happened? Those are kind of the two hermeneutical principles that we have to keep in mind. Now, I don't think that those are mutually exclusive, that it's either one or the other. I think there's components of both, but we have to rightly discern. Okay, is there things in here that are descriptive, but is there also things in here that are prescriptive? And one of the best ways to actually distinguish that is, do we see an overarching aspect to the whole book of Acts? Maybe the details change, but in principle, we see the apostles doing the same thing over and over again. So is this prescriptive? Or is it descriptive? Now, let me show you a quote from someone that's much smarter than me. It's by a guy named Gordon Fee. He's a New Testament scholar. He says this, in kind of understanding this principle. He says, much of the book of Acts is intended by Luke to serve as a model, but the model is not is no so much in the specifics as in the overall picture. You guys tracking with that? So when we're looking at narrative, when we're looking at how does that translate to us today, we're not looking at the specifics, but we're looking at the the overall picture. What do we see that we must do ourselves? Because what would be really dangerous for us to do is if we said it was just descriptive we would kind of treat the Bible like it's some kind of recipe, that if we just follow it correctly, right, if we just do the right things, if we just unlock the Bible, just do all the very same things they did, we'll get the exact same results. I think that's a dangerous way to read historical narrative, especially even a passage like this. My goodness. I don't know how familiar you guys are with the book of Acts, but even in the context that we're looking at here, Peter and John, had just experienced the Holy Spirit coming for the first time to Christians. there was some crazy stuff that happened in Acts 2. A bunch of people were able to start preaching in languages that previously they did not know. That's pretty unique. And then a whole bunch of people got saved and a whole bunch of people got baptized. And then as they're walking around and they're, they're continuing to teach about Christ, they're trying to go up to a temple just to pray, and they come across this disabled man kind of paralyzed man in Acts 3, and and he kind of yells out to Peter, Peter, can you do something for me? And Peter tells him, well, the only thing I have to offer you is Christ. The only thing I can offer you is Jesus. So in his name, get up and walk. And he does it, right? This paralyzed man gets up and walks. Now, if this was just prescriptive, then what should we do as a church? well, we should try to go to every Jewish temple we could find or every paralyzed person we could find and just tell them to walk in the name of Christ if it was just descriptive or or prescribing rather than descriptive. But rather what we see, we see this throughout the book of Acts, those are describing unique miracles that were given to the, the early apostles for the purpose of using that platform to actually do what? to preach about Christ, to tell people about who Jesus is and what he's done. Because Peter, as we will see here in the passage we just read, he's not saying, oh yeah, look at me, I'm a healer. Look at what I can do. But rather, he leverages that platform to exalt Christ in Christ alone. And I think that's the, the principle, that's actually the instruction that we see in this passage. It's not that we should go out and try to heal every paralyzed person that we see, but rather we are to leverage our lives for one central message, and that salvation is found in Christ, in Christ alone. So although the details are descriptible, are descriptive, the principle I think is clear. And as you can see in your bulletins, today's message is built around that we have one central message as a church. We have one hero to exalt. We have one person whom we are telling everyone about. And that's the person and work of Christ. And that's our main point this morning. And that's the main point Of Peter and John. Even if you jump back down to verse 12. Look at verse 12 of Acts chapter 4. How does he end this this little segment? He says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven. And that's just a way to say, under everything. Given among men by which we must be saved. You see, Peter leveraged his time, his life to be about one central message. Now, why is that important? Well, because in the first century where this is taking place, where Peter and John and this is taking place, the exclusivity of Jesus, of the exclusivity of Christ was not popular. Right? It was not popular to say that salvation is in Christ in Christ alone. I think in the same way, it's not popular today. It's not popular today. So for Peter and John, the religious crowd did not want them to be preaching about Jesus, right? They didn't want them to be preaching that it's through him and that the resurrection can only come through him. And they were taking on the popular theology of the day. Because there were some, and I'm not going to have time to get, kind of get into some of the, the more historical details of Acts 4, But you have to know that there was these religious figures known as the Sadducees. They were basically this very influential uh, Jewish teaching group that did not believe in the resurrection, did not believe there was any possibility of the resurrection. Not just about Christ, but just in general. And because of that, they certainly did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and they certainly did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah that was foretold in all of the Old Testament. But yet, here we have Peter and John standing against the current of popular theology where it would have been a lot easier just to kind of go with the flow. But they're standing against the current and saying, it's only through Christ. It's all true. Everything in which we desire is true, but it's only true in Him. And by the way, For Peter to be able to say this and do this, a remarkable work had to be done in his life. And I encourage you, that's why it's part two, is what Luke is writing about. Go ahead and go to the Gospel of Luke and read about Peter. And you'll see, wow, it's pretty magnificent and wild and crazy that Peter, of all people, is standing up and saying, it's Christ, it's Christ alone, and I don't care what happens to me because of it. See Peter unwavered in his preaching about Jesus to a powerful and influential culture. He preached that Jesus did not need the works of the law, and that was popular in his day. He wanted everybody to know that it was Jesus came to save and he, the reason why he saved is not because of what you or I will do in this life, but it solely rests upon what Jesus did in his life and in his death. He's always going back to a church. But thinking about Jesus or Peter and Jesus, he, Peter knew how much it would cost him, right? He knew what were going to be the results of him standing against this popular current of theology. He knew, and by the way, and he's standing up with this kind of high council, it says, that was probably around 70 to 71 guys. I don't know if you guys get nervous about job interviews or having to stand in front of people and give a defense to what you believe, but sitting across the table from two or three people, powerful people, is pretty intimidating. And we're talking about over 70 people standing and saying, why don't you cut this out, Peter? Why don't you just... You can go ahead and teach and tell people, but just leave the Jesus stuff out, and you will be fine with us. But Peter couldn't do it. He couldn't do it because he knew that he was a great sinner. He knew this. He knew this firsthand. And he stood in a land where everyone around him was also this great sinner, unable to save themselves. So, and so he knew that outside of Christ, there was salvation in no one else. That's why, I look back at verse 12. when He says, there's no other, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It wasn't like possibly be saved, or he's an option for, for some but not others. He's, like, he's the only one. He's the only one that we can be saved by. We must be saved by him because there's salvation in no one else. And he was unapologetic in this. Right? He didn't ask if they believed in God or not. Right? He didn't ask if, if they had some common ground in this. Now there are times, church, where no matter what the popular theology of the day is, you just have to say the truth. You just have to say what's true and right. Because he knew what, the, what the, right, his Jewish audience especially these sadducées ones who love the old testament right they love the law of god but peter knew that the law of god was not going to give them what they thought it was going to give them why do we have the law of god the reason why we ha- the primary reason why we have the law of god church is one is it shows us who god is it shows us his holiness it shows us his perfection but then for us then what do we do with that it's not go okay i can figure i can be perfect then We read the law of God and go, "Uh uh-oh, I can't do that, or I've already messed it up, now what? And so Peter is talking to him and says, the law of God only condemns you now. It will not provide the way of salvation which you think it will. It will only lead to death. Or as Paul says, if you live by the law, you will what by the law? Die by it. You'll die by the law. You'll never be good enough. And so he's He's basically explaining this to a very religious culture that had a high view of the law of God, which is not a bad thing, unless we understand it correctly. And so when the religious council is saying, you need to cut that stuff out, you need to stop talking about Christ, Peter says, it's only in Him that the resurrection is possible. He's the cornerstone. He's the very stone in which everything is built upon. So if we miss the cornerstone... We won't have anything to stand upon. Everything is sinking sand without the cornerstone. Peter knew that it was Jesus alone who actually had lived the perfect life. The law of God, which we see, right? I think there's over 600 laws in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Jesus himself even said, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law. It reflects the character of God. I came to actually fulfill the law of God because you couldn't on your behalf, on, on your own, but I could. So Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. He also bore the wrath of God, in which we should have bored. It was Jesus alone who went to the cross as a substitutionary atonement. It was Jesus alone who went to the grave, but then three days later rose again. Because why? Because death had no hold on him. What's death the consequence of, or the wage of? Sin. But he was sinless. So death had no right to him. And so God raised him from the grave. That's what we celebrated Easter, right? That he was risen from the grave. And so Peter is saying, it's Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone, church, who has been given to you a gift from heaven above by which you must be saved. We have one central message. There's a lot of good things we can talk about. There's a lot of things that we want to do well in this life, but we would be missing the bullseye if we didn't have this message as the central component to who we are. It's the best message that a dying world could ever hear, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should have what? eternal life. It's the one central message. It's only through Him. And we've been called to do the same thing. To tell people about the one true God. And even stand against the popular theology of our day. Right? The current that's running down. Now, I don't think that we would say that the popular theology of the day is maybe equal to kind of that pharisaical works righteousness, that it's, it's, God will be happy with me if I just do the right things. I don't think that's the popular theology of the day. I think the popular theology of the day is still contrasted to the gospel, but it's the autonomy of self. Right? It's, it's that your thoughts or your desires or your actions, that's actually the most important thing in the world, that whatever you believe, whatever you think is right, we should actually Promote that. We should actually be a part of that. I don't think it was very long ago that we lived in, and I'm talking mostly about American culture, where it was very popular, kind of the you-do-you the you phase of spirituality, right? Where it didn't really matter what you did or what I did. We just kind of agreed to disagree, right? You do your thing. I'll do my thing. We'll be okay in the end. Church, I think those days are over already. I think they, were, they didn't last very long. Because now I think that it's, hey, what I believe, you actually must believe. And not just believe it, but you actually need to celebrate it. You need it to join me in it. You need to be able to create avenues for me to do that more. I want you to celebrate my religion as something true and right. And don't contest it. That's not loving. If you contest it, that's, that's bigotry. That's, that's small-mindedness. I think it's quite the opposite, though. We have one central message about Jesus and Jesus alone, because it's actually the only way to truly love somebody. It's the only way to actually be able to step into those complications, those complexity that we have as human beings and go, instead of you just trying to come up with your own religion and me trying to come up with my own religion, what if there is something true? And something that's right and something that goes beyond the bounds of of cultural appropriation or goes beyond the bounds of what just seems to be right in that moment. What if there's something that transcends my own thoughts or my own heart? What if there's something even more than that? That's what Peter's getting at here in Acts 4. There is something more than that. There is a cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. In church, I say this lovingly. If, if we pretend that there's no consequences for our actions, if there's no consequences for what we believe and what we do, if we just pretend that none of that matters, I think that we're being some of the most unloving people in the world. Listen, if it didn't matter what you believed, if it didn't matter what you did, I would be perfectly content still trapping bears in the Sierras. Listen, I wouldn't be up here. If it didn't matter, What you or I believe, thought, and did. But Jesus said this in in John 14, 6. And let me show you this. It'll be on the screen. He said this about himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, we as a church, we're not trying to be exclusive for the sake of being exclusive. We're exclusive to one central message because it's Jesus said, I am the way. And that no one comes to the Father except through me. And some of you guys know my story. I haven't been able to get over that. When I understood that, when God revealed that to me, allowed me to understand who He is and what He has done and who I am outside of Him, I've never been able to get over that. And so I stand here constantly just trying to exalt Christ because he's the only one I know to exalt. He's the only one that I know that has gone to the cross to pay for your sins. I haven't. He has. I'm still selfish. I still sin. I know, that's a surprise. Actually, my family's right over there like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Actually, all of you are like, no, it's not. We've seen it. But there's one that is sinless. And it's the one who we're constantly directing our worship towards. It's the one who we're proclaiming. It's the one who we're about, no matter the cost. And so it would be the most unloving thing in the world if we didn't communicate him. Or if I told you that it doesn't matter what you do, or doesn't matter what you believe. It'll just work out in the end. Or if I just say, hey, just try to go be a good person. I don't even know what that means. And so it would be unloving for me just to tell you to go try to figure out something. And to tell you, I hope it works out in the end. I hope the best for you when you die. That would be unloving for me to do, church. If you have your Bibles open, jump down to Acts 4, verse 20. Because the religious rulers kept pressing Peter and John. Kept pressing him, saying, you don't preach about Christ alone. But then he responds by saying, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have to speak about what we have seen and heard. We have to say what Christ has done. Do you remember in the Gospel of John, there is a, There's a blind man who's laying by the pool. I think it's John 9. It's not my notes. And and basically, Jesus walks up to him, and he gives him sight. He's able to see for the first time. And then he starts walking around, and the religious rulers are going, Hey, you were the blind man. How did you begin to see? What happened to you? And the blind man goes, I don't really know, except for this man Gave me sight. I was blind, but now I can see. See, church, that's what Peter and John are talking about here. We can only speak of what we have seen and heard. We have seen Christ. We've known what He does. And that's what that's what Peter's trying to get at. Even when it's not popular, even when it stands in con- in contention to the popular theology or popular current of theology going through. He's like, I can only speak of what we have seen and heard. Listen, I think in our culture today, I think it's safe to say that being a follower of Christ is not going to be the most popular thing that you do in this world. It's not going to give you maybe some of the social equity as it once did in our culture. Now, some lament over that and, and I kind of feel this, this tension about that because one is, obviously, I don't want persecution in a sense of unnecessary persecution on those who want to follow Christ and help others do the same. But yet, I also celebrate the fact that that means that there's no upside to pretending to follow Christ. That can be a very good thing, and we're experiencing that in our culture today. In some ways it's lamentable, in some way it's joyous. Because we get just to stand and say, I'm really only resting in Christ, in Christ alone. I'm not resting in what it gives me in this culture. So what do we do? What do we do about that church? We find ways to exalt Christ. We find ways to have this one central message be just a drumbeat of our own souls. I know for many of you, that's not going to be in this pulpit, right? You're not going to come up and have to preach on Sunday or other times. So it's figuring out, okay, what does it look like for me in being a part of a church or this church, that one central message that runs through our veins? What does it look like on church on Sundays? What does that look like in our homes? What does that look like in our workplaces? That's what we're going to look at throughout the series, is how did they do this? Because not all of them were preaching. Many of them weren't, right? We just saw that at this point there was about 5,000 Christians. Only a handful of them actually were preaching. So what were the rest doing? That's what we'll look at. But they were finding ways to exalt Christ, no matter where life took them. And by the way, they weren't doing it in a prideful way. Remember, who who is preaching here in Acts 4? Peter, primarily. It wasn't very long before this event took place that Peter was denying Christ. right? That he was turning his back on Jesus, saying, Oh, I don't know that guy. I want nothing to do with him, in fact. But yet now, he's putting his life on the line for, for the exclusivity of Christ. Because he knew that it was all true. He could only speak to what he has seen and heard. Now, Peter had some uniqueness to him that we don't have, because in real time, Peter got to see Jesus crucified. He got to see him on the cross. He got to see where they put his body. He got to see the empty tomb. He got to visit with the resurrected Christ. He was able to see him ascend back to his throne. And although we have not seen Christ, Scripture says we love him. And we rest upon that those words have been recorded. Those descriptions are there for us, too. That they've been given to us. And so Peter's saying, I've seen him. I've been a part of his life. I know what he has done on my behalf. I know what he has done on your behalf, sinner. And he's saying, believe, trust in him. There's nobody else. And if you look down at verse 13 how they responded with this this message of exclusivity is they said they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, that they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus, that Jesus or Christianity was not just this moral lifestyle or this philosophical worldview that he just happened to adhere to at this moment in his life. Oh, no, no. It was much more than that. He was saying, they were saying, this guy looks like he's actually been with a Savior. He's actually been with a Messiah. He's actually been with somebody who knows all things and has accomplished all things on his behalf. Would they say that about us? They could tell that this man was greatly impacted by his relationship with Christ. Is that the same for us? We must ask that question. Peter did not want to waste one moment to share about Jesus and his salvation. And it makes all the difference in the world. Especially in those last days. I think in the, in the last few years, right, we have been confronted with death, I think in a, in a unique way with COVID and some of the other things going on. Where we're actually able to, to see death in just a, a way that, humanity's never seen death before in this kind of just real time you know i i remember those early days of covid i don't know if you guys remember this i was refreshing right the website going what's the death count today what's it now what are they projecting it will be at a month in some ways it it, it captivated my heart i don't think in a very healthy way at times we've been confronted with death in a unique way and we've been Looking at that and thinking about that. But let me remind us, Christian, that death has lost its sting. You know, I had the, the pastoral honor this week to sit with a sister in Christ, someone who belongs to this church, who just got the news that she's been put on hospice care. I wasn't sure how much longer that she had. And, and I sat down with her. And I, and I grabbed her hands and you know what, after, after we, I left the house, do you know what I was not feeling? And I know that she was not feeling anxiety. She was not anxious about death. Yeah, we're happy about that. We were actually filled with the joy of Christ in that moment. The joy of his salvation, the joy that comes from knowing the only name that can save someone from the pits of hell. She, and guess what? You know what I did not do during that, that pastoral visit? I didn't, I didn't say, Hey, do you think you've done enough? Do you think that you've been good enough? Do you think that you just happened to find the right moral philosophy to adhere to? Do you think that it's just that you happened to pick the right lane to walk down? I didn't ask her any of that. You know what I talked about? We talked about Jesus Christ. And I said, What do you think about him? And she says, Well, it's because of him. I'm almost home. It's because of him that I'm not worried about death. Death is actually just now the the conduit of getting me to spend more time with him. And it was a celebration, church. Death had lost its sting. There's only one name that can do that. There's only one name that can give that to us. She was not afraid of death because death was no longer her master. Christ was. And he says, I don't lose anybody who belongs to me. Church, there is salvation in no one else. Now, just to wrap things up, that means that if you call this church home, and I'm so thankful that so many of you do, or maybe you're just, you're, you're thinking about, um, you're, you're visiting, kind of checking out us as a church, or maybe you're, you're kind of investigating Christianity in general, Why would people come and worship Christ? Why would anybody do that? Well, I hope I've given you some reasons. But you need to know this about us as a church. And I didn't start this. This started from day one of this church that preceded me. But I'm going to carry the torch. And we're going to keep talking about Christ. We're going to keep talking about his life. We're going to keep talking about his death. We're going to keep talking about his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming, no matter how hard it gets to be a Christian. And I expect it to get harder. I really do. But know what we're going to do? We're going to plant our flag in Acts 4.12. We're going to plant it. We're going to plant it deep, as deep as the gospel goes. And we're going to say, this Savior, this rock is the rock of our salvation. And it's that wonderful hymn that we're just about to sing. It's the rock that's been cleft for me. To the cross alone, we're going to cling. That's good news, church. That's the one central message we're going to be about. So let's go ahead and just end there. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in song. father as we just once again just remind ourselves as i remind my own heart that it's simply to the cross we cling it's only you it's you alone god i just pray for us as a church that although there's a lot of things that we can be about there's a lot of things a lot of messages that that need to be talked about. There's only one central message that we must build it all around, and that's you and your salvation. God, help us do that. Protect us from our own sinful tendencies to drift away from that. Father, we need you. And God, I pray for those of, if there's people in this church right now in this building that don't know you, Lord, God, I pray that you would just open their eyes like that blind man next to the pool that they didn't even realize the ex- if there was any way to see things differently. But you would open their eyes to who you are and what you've done. And they would believe. You would give them that. that they'd be able to turn from that, their sin that separated them from you. Turn to you, knowing that you and you alone have actually paid the penalty for that sin. And they could join us in singing Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Father, we love you. We're desperate for you in all things and in all ways. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Right, well, let's go ahead. And stand together if you're able to.